listening to Through Light from the Juno Award-winning album Forest Grove by Canadian saxophonist Alison Au. You know, when I sat down with Alison, it was like talking to an old friend. As mutual saxophonists, we share a lot in common in terms of our approach to music and practicing and even our outlook on life in general. Saxophone players are a unique group and we relate to each other quite well in so many ways. I had so much fun talking to her about how she practices, about her approach to composition, about this past year and what it meant to her to be in isolation, and how that actually served her in many ways. We also talked about looking forward to getting out and performing in front of live audiences again, and our hopes and aspirations for creativity in the coming months and years. Here's my conversation with Allison Au. Hi, welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. Allison, welcome to The Playful Musician. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. Oh, awesome. How How are things in Toronto? Toronto are okay. Um, the weather is certainly getting nicer, which is um, a little bit more of a sign of optimism. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's definitely been challenging the past year. Uh, we are currently in the midst of a lockdown at the moment, and it just got extended. Oh no! Uh, to, to early June, yeah. Um, so, in terms of like the music scene, um, nothing is still currently happening except for online stuff. I'm sure. Yeah. As it's happening elsewhere. Um, but yeah, there have been no live performances for the majority of the year. So it's been right. challenging. Yeah. yeah. Were you in the midst of like touring or like last a year ago, like what was happening for you right when it all happened? Um, it, just kind of regular, you know, local gigs that I had committed to um, in March when the lo- lockdown literally uh, was uh, put into place. Um, but further in the year, I did have some touring plans uh, last summer. Um, and that was actually to go down to the States. Um, so oh. that was all canceled, unfortunately, which <laughs> my band was really looking forward to. So, yeah, but I mean, aside from that, I mean, compared to some of my peers who were releasing records or had really mm. expansive tours to promote a new release, we didn't have anything going on. Um, uh, but I really feel for my friends who were really had to fold a whole bunch of, um, re- like much larger scale touring plans and stuff like that. 
Yeah. Everybody had to pivot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. And that meant a lot of different things for a lot of people, clearly. Like, I know a few friends, um, not 100% 180, but they, they did do a dramatic shift. I think they're still playing music, but they have a completely different day gig and um, learning new skill sets. A lot of friends are learning coding right now. I have a friend who went into real estate. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's, it's, it's really been interesting to see what, what people um, have uh, yeah, have kind of turned to in these times. Right. And, but you were already like, it seems like you were already on social. You were already doing a lot of uh, online things prior to that. Did it, was it a big, was it a, a huge adjustment for you? I would say so. I mean, that's kind of you to say. I, I do feel like I had a bit of a presence on um, social media and everything like that. Um, but I think the biggest um, kind of reevaluation, if you could say that, for <laughs> sure. me would be to really shift my focus to video content mm-hmm. um, and realizing that I didn't have a lot of that type of things I was posting before a lot of it was just sharing about live performances of course like so many other people um posting posters and photos you know or tour photos and stuff but um I think the big um shift for me is trying to create online content so people can actually see me in practice or um posting videos of myself playing because (laughs) in the absence of performances social media is the the stage at the moment yeah yeah. And I was just watching your Do I Do. Did you create that video? Oh, For cheers. Steve, no, that's, that's my Wonder husband. Thing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. That was really fun. That was oh, really thanks. fun. Yeah, it was really just a fun project. He saw that it was Stevie Wonder's birthday this week, and he's really um, kind of delved into audio production this past year. I mean, he was already quite well, well versed in it, mm-hmm. um, but he's really refined a lot of his um, skill set and learning about plugins and all this stuff. Um, so he's really honed in on that and now has been learning about video editing and, <laughs> and all these things. So it's, it's been really, yeah, it was a fun project. <laughs> yeah, it was, so, it was really great. I was like, Whoa, what's this on your, on your, um, Instagram? I saw it on yeah. Instagram and it was super yeah. fun. That's handy oh. to have a husband who's like into all that stuff. Well, yeah, and that's that's been a bit of my journey this year too is learning how to use Logic um mm-hmm. and track from home and yeah. figure out what kind of microphone works for me and he's really been pivotal in that process for me and um very patiently educating me on on what to use and just like very, I mean, I really didn't know very much when we um started this whole mm. uh past year, so it's been really helpful and and I think I mean, it's great. I have a lot of friends who just wanted to really hone in on their craft and, and practice and write music. And I've been doing that as much as I can, too. But it was important for me to try to learn a new skill set in this time. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing I've probably walked away from this is just trying to start the process of learning about home recording, which is looking like it's it's becoming a lot more commonplace these days. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of great stuff being put out. It's kind of surprising all the musicians i talked to it's interesting how how everybody's taken this time like mm-hmm. clarence penn went back to school like he went to get his masters and you know other people are doing what you're doing creating more online content and some people like 
Charlie Hunter, like, oh, I'm going to finally practice all the things that I never could practice. <laughs> I know, I know, and I felt like that too. And and this is the time, I think. Yeah, and for, it's it's really been interesting to see a lot of these really big touring acts too. Um, you know, to see that they're in exactly the same position <laughs> as so many other musicians right now. Right. And we always kind of look up to our mentors and all the, these amazing musicians we aspire to be. And we think they're... Um, I mean, and, and they are, they're like a different level a <laughs> right. lot of times, but, but this is really kind of level the playing field in that sense of like, we're really all in this, yeah. um, at the same time right now. Yeah. That I, that I totally get that. And I saw that like Dua Lipa did a thing on Amazon. This was last summer where she was just in her kitchen, mm-hmm. like with a backing track singing. And I was like, <laughs> yep, she's. She's in the same boat as everybody else. Yeah, it's so surreal. It is um, surreal. But yeah, but but it's been great, you know, for for those uh, artists who have been willing to share about their process too. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly, um, it was so sad to see Chakuria pass yeah. this year. Oh um, yeah. But he was someone who was really taking advantage of this time in the most positive way. I mean, sharing himself. Uh, posting videos of himself practicing on, and streaming it on Facebook. I mean, mm. I think so many people were uh, thrilled to see that and that kind mm. of um, sharing, you know. Yeah. And his his all his touring or whatever other commitments he had was canceled as well. And um, yeah, so it's it's been it's been really interesting. Have you did you ever see Chikoria perform? I did a handful of times. Um, I saw his electric band back when I was in college, mm. and I think he played, yeah, it would have been at Toronto's Massey Hall, which is downtown, is the old historic mm-hmm. um, theater, and then I saw him again with his trio, oh, this must, more than five years ago now, um, his trio with Christian McBride and Brian Blade. Oh. Yeah, and that was really great to see him in a smaller setting and more acoustic, obviously, um, and they, I think they also played at... Uh, would it have been Massey Hall? It could have been Kerner Hall too. I can't remember exactly, but mm. yeah, it was also a really great experience. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I never yeah. got to see him live, but that's that's cool. I know. Yeah. I know. Gone too soon. Yeah, so many. Like, um, yeah, we lost a lot of great uh, older musicians to COVID. Which I mean, that wasn't Chikoria's case, but mm-hmm. just looking at the past year, there were a lot of yeah. A lot of people gone, unfortunately. Yeah. Um. So I wanted to talk about your quartet. I was listening to your uh, Juno winning album, Forest Grove. What a great, what a great, yeah, what a great project, especially. <laughs> Cheers. Uh, Tides. That tune really captivated me. Um, I loved how you started it with just you and. Tell me your drummer's name. I'm sorry, I can't. Oh, yeah, it's Fabio Ragnelli. <laughs> yeah, you and Fabio, like, um, starting that tune off. I just love the way that that tune progressed, and um, mm. it's it's super fun. Um, do you, I, it you. made me wonder, it, well, first of all, what, what that one, I mean, you've been nominated for Juno, so that one won. Was there something extra special about that recording do you think that 
got you the award or 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 not <laughs> yeah you know what i i'm gonna be honest i, I don't think so i mean yeah. i think if if the jury panel that year in particular heard something obviously i'm very grateful yeah. um but i think like so many musicians you know you just you just put together your thing and you you do as um much service to the music as you can possible yeah. Yeah. And it's likely that maybe certain aspects just crystallize with that record um, compared to the one we had released previously. Mm. And then since, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I, I feel uh, deeply in my heart that we've tried to do a similar thing each time. So, I mean, I guess it's a million dollar question, right? <laughs> what What is it that people see or hear in certain things that others don't and vice versa in any art form? Um uh, it's, it's an interesting question to me. And I, I, you know, I've thought about it, um, in the context of film and, yeah. uh, TV shows and paintings. Why, um, I mean, in the greater scheme of things, I'm totally digressing here, but no, I mean, no. why, why certain artists are recognized over other things or for certain periods of their work, you know? Um, but I think in terms of my band's approach, um, and we've quite literally, like we've used the same studio for the last, like all my albums, um, same recording engineer, mm -hmm. and my partner Todd has produced all of the records. Um, and in each of the three albums we've done, it's been really collaborative. Like I do try to bring in um, the guys' feedback through the rehearsal process and even recording. We try to curate the songs as an ensemble, which mm. which pieces get recorded. Because there's lots of music that I've written that we've never. Um, it kind of just got vetoed, or we <laughs> we put in the next pile, you know. Sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I would say maybe with regards to Forest Grove, I think it was a confluence of uh, factors um, mm -hmm. for maybe why it got a little bit more recognition or, um, yeah, what people heard in it for sure. But yeah. I think my approach has been um, pretty much the same. Sure. And I'm just trying to pull, you know, we, we heavily workshop all those songs. Um, what does that look like when you say workshop? Like, what do you, what do you guys do when you workshop a, a tune? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I'll bring in what I see as um, a lead sheet notation for my music. Mm -hmm. And so what I try to do is write the bare bones um, on that piece of music. Mm -hmm. And so in jazz terms, I mean, it would really just be melody um, chords. with chord symbols. Yeah. So you didn't, um, you're not coming in with like, this is the groove I'm thinking of, or this is the specific baseline necessarily... Baseline sometimes that is information that I will include. Um, but yeah. in terms of groove, I really leave that up to Fabio. Um, so that's an extremely collaborative process. A lot of times I don't even know what would sound best. So we play with uh, like for him as a trio, like we'll kind of do a quick rendition and he'll listen mm -hmm. and then he'll kind of add, you know, Oh, I'm going to, I think this would sound cool. And then it also changes a lot too. I bet. So in that rehearsal and workshop process, we try a lot of different things. Um, so it's kind of like, it looks like us throwing things at walls and seeing what sticks, uh -huh. quite quite literally. <laughs> and are you leading that process or is it really just more like organic, collaborative in the moment? It's collaborative. I mean, I see my role as the, the quote unquote band leader um, in the sense that I am the sole composer like I am the only person in the band bringing in 
uh, notated music. Mm -hmm. But after that, um, I kind of, and this is something I've like intentionally tried to do is actually really detach myself from the music and um, come to terms with the fact that it has nothing to do with me after I show it to the musicians. Mm -hmm. So after that, I really don't try to lead the, um, that workshopping process as much. So I let the guys take over if they feel there's a compelling idea that they're hearing. Mm. Um, and in, in that sense, I have tried to cultivate a sense that I don't know as much as my band members will in that process. And so I have to let them shape the music and, if something is not working, I let them tell me that, and then we end up not playing the song too. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it's been a it's been like several years in the making of me trying to figure out that kind of approach. But I mm -hmm. think the writing of the piece is like one hundred percent a solitary act that I take ownership, and and that's my role. And then once I bring it in, it it's no longer mine. Right. How do you resolve uh, disagreement or like, you know, if they're like, well, that someone's like, no, I really feel strongly this way. And someone's like, well, no, no, that doesn't really work. Like how do, how do you guys resolve conflict if it comes up, which I'm sure yeah. it must. <laughs> it mu yeah, you know, you're right. But you know what? I think for the most part, we don't have a lot of disagreements in that sense. I mm. think we've understood that when we're in this workshop stage specifically, yeah. uh, we try everything. No one's suggestion really gets blatantly shot down. We might try it and say, oh, you know what? I think that might've worked better. And then we'll try the other option and then we discuss. And then we find a way. So if, if there is kind of a disagreement, we might try a combination of the two solutions if okay. there is one. <laughs> And I would imagine, I mean, the times, if, if it has gotten really, like, um, we've reached a stalemate in some respects, we would probably leave that song and move on to the next thing yeah. and then come back and try it later. Yeah. And then we'll agree on at least one person's idea of how it should be played and then just see if we like it. And then the other thing is, if we're really in disagreement, I think what we do is we just commit to one and then we try it on a gig. Oh, See how and then goes. if that doesn't work, then we come back and change it again. All right. So, and I think this is true for a lot of ensembles who've been playing together for a while and have, have kind of really made an effort, which I believe I have tried to cultivate a band sound, mm -hmm. um, trying things out and it, it will morph as you play it. And I think yeah. that's why the touring process or anytime we even just have a string of regular local or, you know, several local gigs in a row, that any kind of repetition is so valuable to me because I, I understand the music is going to change mm -hmm. and I want to see what it's going to lead to. Um, and so I guess, you know, in, in a nutshell, this is why this time has also been so hard. It's not only do we not have tours, we just don't even have performances at the moment to even yeah. try anything. Right to see that. Um, but yeah, I think to me that's, that's why the touring process in, in our ensemble process has been really, really, uh, invaluable. Mm. I was, it. I wanted to ask about that, how, how a tune might morph or change when, when it's on the road, like, do you guys debrief after, after a gig or is there like, 
you know, you're like, oh, wow, this cool thing happened. Let's do that more. Like, how, how does that work? Yeah, that ha- that happens quite a bit, actually. Um, it may not necessarily happen immediately after the gig. Sometimes it does. Um, and certainly, you know, the last few tours we've done, we, we hang out all the time after we're done concerts and uh mm-hmm. usually we're just joking around and, and eating food and stuff right. um but yeah sometimes that comes up um other times it comes up on drives you know we're going between uh cities and performances because that's um an underestimated time of travel mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're driving which i think is the majority of of how bands get from a to b um yeah, I remember. I remember hearing about. Uh, there was an interview or some kind of report I was hearing about parents trying to talk to their kids and and how as your your children go through adolescence, it's harder to find those moments. But yeah. often, driving in a car is a great time to talk to your kid if you have a difficult subject to address. <laughs> yeah, because you're not looking at each other and there's distractions outside the car and all this stuff. Yeah. Um. And I think that kind of rings true, you know, that there are a lot of honest conversations that happen in the car. Mm. Um, and yeah, and sometimes sometimes the music has come up or oftentimes it's reflecting on how other bands or bands that we love or listen to recordings of those records, you know, like, you know, Miles Davis Quintet sure. or John Coltrane, whatever is whatever we're playing and checking out. Um, and sometimes it's the analysis of others or feedback I hear from my bandmates about other ensemble dynamics that inform how I end up writing later. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think that those seeds are planted in those moments. Um, but they are without me knowing it. Right. And just really intently listening to my bandmates talk about time feel and, Oh, that song was really amazing. Like, listen to how, you know, <laughs> that person did this in that moment. And that, mm-hmm. that will spur an idea sometimes for composing or for trying things out with a pre-existing tune already. And then we'll, we'll kind of check that out together. So we actually do a lot of inadvertent collective listening as an ensemble when we're touring. Right. On the, when you're in the car. (laughs) I know. Check this out. (laughs) Special, special time. Sometimes six hour stretches, right? I mean, Oh wow. Yeah. It's incredible what you get to, you learn about your, your peers in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Like a fan. You guys are a family in a sense. Yeah. And I, I really believe as a band leader that I love all my bandmates as brothers, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think you have to, I think you have to, cause you have to care, you know, you have to care to, to hustle for them. I yeah. mean, in terms of the business side of things. Um, and then that trust, I think too, when you're, um, finally performing with them. Yeah has to be there to some extent oh absolutely yeah yeah that you guys have been together a long time how have you how have you managed to keep the band together um yeah that's a good question i mean i just i just think of those voices so consistently you know um mm-hmm. and i think we've tried to find a or strike a balance rather i i would probably say maybe it's that rehearsal process that i hold so dear to cultivating the sound of my ensemble that i've tried to establish like that kind of equal platform Mm -hmm. 
and I can't speak for the other guys, but I, I, I hope to think that um, they feel that they contribute or they can contribute in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, and I, I do believe that happens in other ensembles, but I, I am aware how it doesn't happen as well. Yeah. And sometimes that space is just not created and, and understandably so, you know, every artist has a very specific way that they like to work and um, create their own sounds. And so, you know, you just encounter the, uh, the variety of different people. I mean, I've certainly been in situations where there are band leaders who are just not as open to taking feedback or trying different things out or experimenting with the way their piece could be played. Mm-hmm. They have a very specific vision. Um, and, and that's great too. I think that's great. I think sometimes it can be, I think maybe detrimental is too harsh a word, but sometimes I feel if people could open up their perspective just a little more to see that one other option or a couple other approaches could actually heighten the music Mm. or further improve that sound they're going for that maybe they haven't otherwise imagined yet but if they could open their ears to a couple of other people's suggestions like i truly believe that the music will be better from other people's ears or by (laughs) by the contributions of those other people listening um yeah but i it is about trust and i feel very lucky that i can trust uh that feedback that i um that i welcome (laughs) yeah have as you ever brought brought an idea in that you were like, oh, I don't know if this is a very good idea, and then after you guys workshop it, you're like, wow, that like what they added to it just totally changed my mind. <laughs> or yeah, absolutely. I, I would say the rehearsal process, quite honestly, is uh, very uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and I initially, um, what's uncomfortable th- about it? Well, I think composers, as a rule get very attached to what they write. Mm. And that's the exact thing I've been trying to dissociate myself from as much as I can. And it, it is still a process for me. Like I'm by no means perfect at being able to, to do that. And so on the flip side, when you are very attached to your music, every suggestion as to how to play it, even if it's coming from a positive place, and for the most part, it usually is. <laughs> yeah can be seen as a personal judgment. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of musicians who write, uh, either they're exclusively performers or uh, performing composers, um, it can be a bit of, um, what's the phrase? Just like you feel feel like your ego is being attacked Mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah, yeah. and that that totally makes sense because I mean I've 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 absolutely experienced that. So I think if you can realize that it has nothing to do with you, it's just about the music. <laughs> that's where things I think get really interesting, and and yeah. they finally have a chance to grow and develop and morph. And then you realize that your song could actually be better than you thought it could be, mm-hmm. rather than thinking it might be worse, it might actually be better. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Here's another track from the Juno award-winning album, Forest Grove. This one's called The Clearing. Mm -hmm. 
you graduated college, my understanding is you weren't really sure that you were going to pursue music like that. That was going to be your career. Yeah, yeah. What was what was your plan? Or did you have one at that point? I did not have a plan. I mean, fortunately, I'm from Toronto. and My parents uh, live in Toronto and I chose to go to school here. So yeah. after graduation, my plan very simply was just to move back home. Um, have, have a year kind of buffer right immediately after college to kind of figure a few things out. Mm-hmm. And my parents were, I mean, I, I really am gracious to my parents for everything that they have provided to me as a child, but also just their emotional and, mm. um, personal support. So they were cool as long as I was working. So I was, I was sub subbing teaching for friends and filling in for friends rehearsals or gig whatever I could do yeah that was kind of the first year out of college and in the midst of that I did do a cruise ship contract so I (laughs) I did a gig for five months on a cruise ship oh where did where was the cruise ship um it started in the Caribbean for oh fun two months and then it was one of the um, routes that crossed the ocean and did the Mediterranean for another three months oh. of their uh, of their schedule. And at that time, when I was in college, um, a lot of my peers were doing these short contracts in the summer months to make some money and then help pay for tuition and stuff. Yeah. So I didn't have a chance to do that between my years, but I decided to do it at the end. Um mm. And it was just, you know, kind of, oh, you know, so-and-so is doing that. So I, right. I maybe I want to try that too at some point. And it was just a way to make some money. So yeah. I did that and it was a really, um, with hindsight, it ended up being a really pivotal experience for me, I think, if not only for the mm. fact that I realized what I didn't want to do. <laughs> Play on cruise ships? <laughs> yeah. And and sometimes it's as simple as just having an experience like that for it to really crystallize. And I think mm. maybe the length of the contract had something to do with it. How long was it? Five months. Okay. Or maybe closer to five and a half months, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, it, I think it takes an experience like that to figure Because I really was at odds with what I envisioned myself doing. I knew I wanted to continue playing saxophone. I don't think that ever left me. Mm-hmm. Or I ever questioned that, rather. Um, but it was really trying to envision. And I think this is true for so many college students. Is What does that actually look like when you're when you're done college, yeah. when you're outside of that, that kind of bubble mm-hmm. and circle. Um, so yeah, I did that <laughs> and I realized what playing the same show is. And when you get sick of music or when you're in a very specific ensemble setting and there's really not a lot of movement, yeah. uh, artistically and creatively, um, yeah, you have a specific product that you're delivering. Absolutely. And there is an art to that, too. And I, I uh, can absolutely appreciate, uh, you know, when when things are done at a very high level in that kind of setting. Mm-hmm. Certainly, excuse me, wasn't the case in the situation <laughs> I was in. But um, but I could see I could see the potential of when the elements could have coincided to the highest caliber of that that iteration of the situation. Um, yeah. And it, yeah, it made me really rethink projects I was involved in that time. You know, you're isolated in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And at that time, um, going online when you're on a boat remotely 
I remember the particular ship I was in, I'm sure it's changed now, but they would charge the crew members to use the internet per minute. Mm-hmm. And then you had to buy like a little internet card. to if you want to log on, you had to buy it in increments of like 15 minute blocks or whatever. Yeah. So it was costly for me to go and go on Facebook. I mean, Instagram wasn't even around yet, but just to check in to see what people are doing, email friends, forget about phoning people. I mean, I would have to wait till we got to a port. Right to phone because the reception on, I, I remember they had a phone that you could use, mm. uh, but it was very costly and the reception wasn't good. Yeah. Um, so in isolation, and I think there are a lot of parallels to the time we're experiencing right now, or, you know, yeah. for, for cities that maybe are just starting to come out of it, what we went through <laughs> last year, at least, um, that first initial shock of what it is to be feel alone or separate from your community all of a sudden. Yeah. And how much, you know, in internal and personal reflection people <laughs> went through and my, myself included. Um, so I think I had a mini dose of that when I, when I did that cruise ship contract and really reevaluate what types of things I want to do creatively when I get home and what mm. kinds of projects. So I had a lot of time to daydream in that time. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. And that's why I'd say that that experience is really important to me. Um, mm. But even on returning home, so after those five months were done, I still was not sure, but I I did as much as I could to stay involved and mm -hmm. um, connect with my peers who I went to school with and play with them and session with them and go see their concerts and, you know, as much as I could. Yeah. Um, so I don't think I had like an epiphany. <laughs> I think it kind of things just snowballed for me, mm -hmm. but there wasn't a moment where... I decided that it was going to be a career. I think I always just told myself that I was going to keep trying. Okay. And every year I would like to try to do something different creatively. Mm -hmm. And I would just keep trying. And through that, I mean, I was teaching and like doing as much work as I could to make some money through that. But I had a lot of time. I think in those first few years out of school, you don't have a lot going on. So you're, yeah. you're just trying a lot of things out. Right. And when did, when did you form the band? I formed the band when I came home from the cruise ship. So that was um, a really, you know, a high priority mm -hmm. thing to do on my list. Um, yeah. So probably within months of coming home. Right. It was really important for me to have an outlet to write music for. Right. And that was kind of the impetus behind starting it, just to have something I could practice writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you write when you were younger also, or did that really start for you when you were in college? Yeah, I, I, I definitely in college. I mean, if I can remember, I may have written some really short things on the piano when I was studying piano um, in high school. Mm -hmm. um, and I started piano when I was six. But by high school, I think I was really understanding that I enjoyed the sounds of what I could, you know, as a kid, I think you're often resentful. You have to go to a lesson and sit, <laughs> right. you know, for any amount of time. Right. Um, but I think by high school, it started to crystallize that I actually really enjoyed the process of being at the piano and playing. Mm -hmm. um, and I may have written a few things in a very, um, long-winded way or, or very short ideas, but I'm not understanding how notation really yeah. worked for what I wanted to do. Um, 
so yeah, I have I have a couple of recollections, but nothing extensive. Like I never wrote a complete piece. I think yeah. it was just short ideas. Sure. Um, and yeah, in college, it, it really um, kind of forced me to to create structure in, from an informed place. Yeah. Um, so there were a couple of classes, and then arrange, I took arranging classes as well when I was at college. Mm-hmm. And that was was that mostly for like big band, large ensemble arranging, or was it both? Yes, it was mostly for for big band arranging, but there was a unit um, where we did do some small ensemble stuff, and I do remember having to score for strings. So oh, they wow. tried to break up the year in, in a couple of different sections, but absolutely the majority of the time was for big band instrumentation. Wow, how yeah. was that for you? It was great. I love that class. I think I knew that I liked all the different colors of <laughs> of what you know the, the class entailed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always been drawn to to big band writing, mm. um, and I think that I mean not exclusively, but that that sound has been a one large reason why I really, I think was compelled to want to study jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly in the first few years of college, I was listening to a lot of big, I mean, I had Mingus big band. Uh, I, I remember listening to Dave Holland, but any big band record I could find, I was trying to, yeah, you know, get everything, <laughs> you know, as much as I could. Yeah. Um, nice. So anyway, yeah, that, that, that class was an absolute joy to do. <laughs> so I, I seem to remember you saying that I, I know your dad played a lot of music and shared a lot. You had a big uh, CD and an LP collection. And yeah. I think you somewhere you mentioned there was, I think, an Ella Fitzgerald recording that really captivated you. With that, Was that with a big band? No, that was with a small ensemble. <laughs> That's from the Ella Live in Berlin okay. um, record. But it was on a compilation that my dad had. I didn't even know what the original recording it had come from. Oh, I was. see. Um, but yeah, it was her. It's her singing "Mac the Knife," which is a really <laughs> famous recording from that album. And she forgets the lyrics, and I think it's uh, yeah, she's just playing with the trio. Um, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So, so yeah. So it wasn't a big band, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean that that sound too. Um, it's so iconic, I guess, but I loved like the the playfulness in her approach and just how the band interacted with her. And I think that was a really um, just left a really lasting impression on me. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first uh, album, jazz album you you bought, like you actually purchased, or CD? Maybe it was a CD. That <laughs> mm. I actually bought. Oh my goodness. I don't know if I would remember that now because, well, when I really started getting to jazz, I wasn't buying my own stuff. That was really what my, whatever my dad had in his collection. Yeah. Um, so I probably didn't buy a jazz album until I was in college and I can't remember what that would have been right now. Okay. Cause I would have, you know, to me it's like the, oops, the, the visual, Mm-hmm. And I remember holding so many records before I actually bought something um, from a store. Um, but I can remember some of the the records that I was listening to in high school. I remember uh, Horace Silver song from my father. Uh-huh. And I remember replaying that song, The Kicker and Joe Henderson. It's a Joe Henderson composition. Mm-hmm. And he has a feature on that song. And I listened to that track on repeat in high school. 
What was it um, about that song do you think that really grabbed you? Um, I like the melody. I think the melody was a bit of a departure. I mean, I listened to a lot of Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, Louis Armstrong in my early years. Yeah. That was kind of what I really gravitated towards. Yeah. Um, and then when I found that Horace Silver record and that song in particular, I guess, you know, Joe Henderson, part of that hard bop, post bop era, the kind of writing that was happening was really interactive. The shots written, the piano part and the bass have a very specific thing in the head. Mm -hmm. There's, there's things that the horns are kind of bouncing off of. I don't know if I heard a lot of that or was really aware of it until I listened a lot more intently to, to recordings like that. Yeah. And then, of course, you later see that with Art Blakey songs and right. all that stuff, but or arrangements. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think that's what it was. Fun. It was that interaction. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> when did you start um, trans transcribing stuff? Like, was that also in college? It was in college. Um, yeah, because like I really came late to a lot of things. I mean, I was studying privately with a, a saxophone teacher in Toronto um, from about middle school when I started band mm -hmm. um, into high school. But it really wasn't a serious pursuit for me. I just knew that I loved it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wasn't one of those high school kids that was involved in a lot of extracurricular band things. Right. Um, I did attend an art school when I first started music, um, like a, a saxophone. Mm -hmm. But when I transitioned to high school, I ended up going a more academic route. And so music kind of took a bit more of a back burner. Uh, yeah. You know, in terms of time and, Focus and, and all that. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of my time in high school was really spent just in lessons and not so much ensemble playing or I wasn't part of any um, club or anything like that. So you weren't in like band, symphonic band or concert band in high school? Mm, only in one year when I, so I transitioned from an art school, middle school into one year of a arts high school. And I hated <laughs> my time there. I really had a very negative experience oh, in that no. program. Uh, yeah. And then I switched to a more, I s literally switched schools and went to a more academic focused, uh, high school mm -hmm. so following that first year i did do uh those things um but uh for the last four years of high school i, I wasn't part of a band like that you were just studying privately and was that with kelly yeah. jefferson is that the person's name or was no, that no i i met kelly later in okay. college no i studied with a local saxophone player yeah okay. um and he's oh he's now in his late 80s now um what were those but yeah i, I yeah. What were those lessons like? Those early um, ones? A lot of classical repertoire. Um, just kind of getting the fundamentals. I mean, I had to learn all my scales and 12 keys and learning in, inversions of my arpeggio, you know, all yeah, the yeah, yeah. technique that we practice. Um, and then it was just a combination of uh, classical repertoire and some jazz studies, mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of improvisation. So I was exposed to. Um, some of the the jazz heads yeah or the jazz standard heads like, um and we were just starting to get into how to improvise sure. when i was yeah maybe about 17 18 i was learning about it but i really didn't know what i was doing for the most part <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really trying to walk blindly through a piece and trying to figure out get my bearings yeah 
Um, and I think that was the motivation behind wanting to go to college and, and try at least to check out what a music program would entail at that stage. Cause I knew I really loved saxophone, um, but really still there are a lot of holes in my knowledge mm -hmm. as to how to improvise well, how to play with others in a, in a jazz setting. Yeah. Um, I think I really was at a loss of how to move forward when I was in my final year of high school. Yeah. Um, so that was the intention with trying to go to music school for a year, but that was the intention just to go for a year and then eventually transition to another school after that. Right. You were going to study science, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when did you know, okay, this is, you know, what, what compelled you to keep going with music and not head back to science? Um, the experience I had in college the first year, I think by the end of that first year, I realized that I wanted to finish the degree. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was a combination of the people, the peers that I had met and the teachers that I had met. And this was at Humber? Yeah. At Humber College in Toronto. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just think I found my tribe. Awesome. Um, Yeah. I think, like for so many kids, you know, high school, I don't think I was an unpopular kid or I wasn't, um, you know, I don't know. But I, I, high school was a very stressful experience for me. Yeah, I can relate. <laughs> yeah. Even though I, I, it wasn't that I didn't have any friends or anything I couldn't point to blatantly, but it wasn't an enjoyable time. Um, and I, you know... Mm -hmm. who knows yeah hormones it's like <laughs> being self-conscious about how you look it's yeah all these things and I had transitioned high schools in that time so it was kind of entering a new social circle um having kind of departed from friends who I'd gone to middle school with and then deciding to switch schools in pursuit of a specific program but then realizing like socially oh what did I do and I'm in like a totally different school I don't know anyone yeah um, my sister had attended the second school I went to. So a few of, you know, there were some people who I, I knew casually, you know, or, sure. but not no one that I was really close friends with at that second school. Um, so yeah, just like all, you know, the trials and tribulations yeah, yeah. of being a, a teenager a teen, yeah. and not feeling like, um, I really connected with anyone on the, the you know, the levels of things that I was really passionate about. And then I think as soon as I got to college, I realized that there are so many people like me that maybe felt like they were, you know, slightly a bit of a misfit in high mm -hmm. school, but we're all kind of jumbled together in a college scenario because finally we're, we're streamlined into a pocket. Yeah. So even though I hadn't found, you know, the band kids in high school, I feel like I found them in college. Right. And I didn't realize perhaps earlier that that was, my circle of friends, perhaps because I was so focused on academics and just trying to, you know, yeah. not sure of what I was going to do uh, post-secondary. Um, but yeah, I guess I, I, I guess in a nutshell, I gave myself the chance to uh, finally find those people mm -hmm. and then find things to work on with those people. I think that's what music does is it gives you, uh, you know, that collective goal. Mm that you end up collaborating with people in a really interesting way for the common, the common pursuit of that thing. Yeah. Um, was that a st now that, stressful yeah. first year in college because you were, you had to fill a lot of gaps musically or. 
Yeah, somewhat, somewhat for sure. But overall, like incredibly positive because mm. I also saw the the potential and seeing peers who, you know, are so much more advanced and experienced and some of the older students being able to play things that I wanted to aspire to, to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing the possibilities of my instrument with not just another adult, but someone closer to my age, you know. Right. Um. Yeah, as self-conscious as I certainly was, I was also, I think the inspiration um, trumped that, you know, right. really took over. And was, uh, who was your saxophone teacher at Humber? Um, I had a few different people. Oh, so that's, my first year was Kelly Jefferson. That's where I met Kelly. Mm-hmm. And then for my second and third year for private lessons, I studied with Andy Ballantyne. Okay. He's a wonderful saxophone player. Um, he's a fantastic doubler as well. Oh, okay. He's one of those guys who does a lot of different things in Toronto. Um, he's very active in the the musical scene as well. He plays in Stratford and Shaw Festival, which are the big theater towns in Ontario. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so with him, I spent a lot of time um, on doubles, so flute and clarinet. And then he's also a fantastic arranger, so... Um, I kind of divided my lessons with him between playing and talking about composition and mm. arranging techniques. I'd bring in scores and we would talk through them and he helped me edit them. And, oh, awesome. Um, so I spent two years with him just because there was so much yeah. <laughs> subject matter to cover with him and to get his feedback on. And then my fourth year at school, I studied with Pat LaBarbera. Okay. Who's a tenor saxophone player. Yeah. Wow. So you had a lot, yeah, so- a lot of different influences there. Mm-hmm. Certainly. And um, I think they may have changed the way they conduct private lessons now, but at the time, there were only half-hour lessons a week. A lot of programs now, I, I'm pretty sure Humber now does hour lessons yeah. uh, per week, but they were so short when I was in college, so we really had to try to cram as much as possible. And as much as I drew inspiration from my teachers, it was also the um, the class teachers were also incredibly amazing as well. Right. You had mentioned that Kelly really changed your concept of your sound. I'm curious, like, how how did he do that? Or what, like, were there specific things he had you do? Or, or what, what, what took place there? He really emphasized flexibility. And he really kind of imparted that on me or kind of shared that concept with me in a very broad sense. Mm-hmm. But his approach is really about being able to play in as many different scenarios that you find yourself in Mm -hmm. and to make your sound um, moldable, I guess, to some extent, but flexible, like to be able to shape, um, be flexible with your intonation, um, to be able to to find pitch in a very like creative, but um, not a rigid way of thinking about that and how it's a moving target a lot of the times especially as a wind player. We're not in fixed pitch. We have to adjust all the time. Did he give you specific exercises to work on that? Yeah. Saxophone specific. Yes. It would be overtones. Um, There are a lot of embouchure control exercises. Mm -hmm. Um, Sound flexibility, uh, long tones, (laughs) for lack of a better way to describe it, but different ways of practicing long tones. Mm -hmm. Um, Like for example... Oh, uh, well, just like really practicing with the metronome, Mm -hmm. um, 
Do you want do you want me to get into the the nitty gritty? Sure, yeah, I love. This is something I nerd out about is tone practice and sound practice. Cool. So I'm really curious, like what what that looked like or. Yeah. Okay. Um. So for overtones, I mean, uh, he had me put the metronome on 60 BPM, mm-hmm. um, and they're matching tone exercises. So starting from low B flat, uh-huh. um. And you work up the instrument. So from the B flat, I'm matching. Sorry, going up the partials. You mean? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yep. And I, uh, he just had me go up to high F for this particular exercise, but it's all about matching timbre and then pitch. So I would try to match the timbre of the overtone note, but the pitch of the actual fingered note, which is actually quite challenging to do because the actual finger note is truly more in tune mm-hmm. but the overtone the color of the overtone pitch um has a lot more of the harmonics and the richness and sound yeah so you're trying to blend the two so you can't tell the difference between the two but we're doing it in time so you're trying to adjust your embouchure in a timely manner to try to get that matching to happen as well uh-huh so that's become part of my daily routine um and how high Practicing how long. high would you go up? Like from low B flat, would you go up to like D or even higher than that? No, I just went up to uh, like palm key F basically, and then we we kind of wrap up there. So I no, go I mean matching, if you're so. you're doing the overtones, you're starting on low B flat, and then do you go to B yeah. and do that overtone series, and then C and yeah, exactly. But I was kind of going um, the the shape he had me going was slightly scalar, so I would play. The first overtone off B flat, and then the first overtone off B, and then C, and then C sharp. And then when I got to C sharp, I'd go to the second overtone of B flat, the second overtone of B, C, C sharp, and then I go So you're kind of playing scales than the overtones. Yeah. Okay, got it. Kind of, kind of. So you work up in the progression of pitch, Mm -hmm. but you're adjusting what the overtone uh, fingering is. Um, so that was one exercise and then and you still um, do that. Yeah, I still do that. Cool. I still do that. I'm trying now to look into other overtone exercises too. Um, I was just reading about a, a new book that, uh, the saxophonist Ben Wendell just published. Uh-huh. Um, and he has a whole thing about altissimo and a lot of it is about, uh, overtones and voicing. So yeah. I was just watching a YouTube video about that. I'm kind of curious to check that out as well. Yeah. But there's, there are so many great yeah. exercises to... <laughs> to hone in on that that's just one that i i worked on a bunch but i would i know people work on like um register slurring with the overtone series yeah um which i have done in the past but i haven't honed in on that recently um and did that that overtone work really shifted your tone and your sound i guess so i mean yeah i i think all those kinds of exercises you know, as Saxon players, you just kind of commit to, I don't know if I, you know, you don't know your progress in that, in those moments when you're practicing things like that. Yeah. I just knew that I had to commit to doing it Yeah. without question. It was like, uh, the kind of routine, you know, like brushing your teeth. Mm-hmm. We, we stop thinking about it. Yep. And there's certain things as wind players, I think that you have to do for, for maintenance and you don't necessarily know how it's translating. Yeah. So in that case, it was just blind trust. I was just trusting the process. Yeah, I tell my students that because I have them do overtones and they hate it. And I'm like, you just yeah. you just have to trust me. <laughs> this is yeah, gonna help. Yeah, I know. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and then the other thing was um, practicing with drones. That's what uh, oh, great Kelly really got me into. That really... Yeah, so I'm sure maybe you've already you've already done a bunch of that too. I did. You know what? When I was in college, it was really, and it probably still is very popular for people to use a tuner, like a visual tuner. And my teacher was like, "Forget that noise. Like, you're never gonna. You're sitting in an orchestra or a big band. That's gonna do you no good." Like you need to be able to hear right away. Am I in tune? <laughs> and what yeah. what part of the chord you're playing also will determine that. So if you're playing yeah. the third or the or the minor third, you might need to adjust. You, you know. So if you're looking at your anyway. So yeah, I've done a lot of drone work. So that's really cool to hear you say that you you work on that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And that, that was really helpful or, and, and, you know, now it's about like playing into the drone, but I think initially it was like, try play sharp against the drone <laughs> and hear and it consistently play sharp. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, you know what it sounds like and play flat and really try to play flat. Would you, so I would, yeah. With the drone, do you play a series of tones or are you just trying to match pitch with the drone? Um, no, I'll play around it. I'll play melodies and things around it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then deliberately try to play sharp consistently and see if I can keep that going. Um, wow. Yeah. And just try, try a lot of different things. Cause, um, intonation was something that I struggled with for a while. And I think I wasn't sure how to, um, adjust quickly in certain scenarios. I just didn't understand the mechanics. And I think Kelly really shed light on that where it's always moving. Mm hmm. And you have to find that what what how does it sound the best you know like figure that out and I don't think he he deliberately told me to to practice playing sharp but I kind of figured that out for myself mm -hmm. like I think the cool thing about his teaching approach is that he'll tell you things but he's actually trying to encourage you to find it on your own discovery and he will acknowledge that he can't show you he will try to explain it to you but he he understands how powerful it is when you uh find that thing on your own right experiencing it so, for yourself yeah yeah so a lot of our lessons were spent playing duets not a ton of talking i mean like in terms of instruction mm -hmm. i think he was really encouraging and and was like yeah just keep just keep at it like they're you know there's, there were certainly holes in my playing yeah. and we would address a few things, but a lot of it was just playing. Like that was the majority of the lessons, um, right. that I took with him. And actually I'm talking now about the time after school because okay. though I met him at yeah. college. I, uh, was fortunate to receive some grant funding to continue my studies with him. So I spent an addition, additional two years with him. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah. And, um, there are a couple of other tone exercises another one that i still work on is um pitch bending from uh palm keys okay so for example from high f mm -hmm. i will try to um go down in semitones from f um up to a minor third down okay and then just try to like get control over so i'm kind of playing segments of scales but just pitch bending down from F and I do that with F E E flat and D. Okay. Yeah. Do you ever do that I've with just that, the mouthpiece? Yeah. Yeah, I have done that. Okay. 
And it's, <laughs> so it's obnoxious. the most fun to practice. <laughs> but yeah, it would be similar to that. Yeah. Just trying to get flexibility with, uh, with on the saxophone as well. Yeah. But yeah, it's an extension of that for sure. Awesome. That explains yeah. a lot because you're very facile in the altissima. Like I was listening to a lot of your lines and you pop up there and, uh, and it's not like you're just hitting high A or something. Like you have a, a lot of flexibility when it comes to including altissimo in your lines. Oh, thank you. I, I feel like it's very much a work in progress. I think I have a, a long way to go, but I, yes, I, I have tried to make a concerted effort to include the third register as much as I can. Do you practice scales but up there? I do. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to find currently other things to work on, uh, and to practice. Um, in fact, I've been taking a few lessons with, uh, saxophonist Remy LaBeouf in New York city. Oh, I don't know him. Um, he's a great alto saxophone player and he's a wonderful composer as well. Mm. Um, but he's played in Toronto a few times and I've really admired his sound and his facility. And he's one of these guys who also has like, I mean, really incredible facility in the upper register. Um, and so he has me playing just through like a lot of intervallic shapes at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and not even in altissimo right now, he's just trying to get me to like master my, uh, my normal <laughs> register. Um, but to see the, how all these things can be projected into altissimo register, sure. I'm excited to, to try to shift them around eventually. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I so admire the, the alto players. Another one of my favorites is Ben Van Gelder, like mm. just so much uh, fluidity and it feels like it's the same. Well, I guess, I guess that goes without saying, you know, all, all the saxophone players we love who have facility up there, yeah. it's just like an extension of that, um, the texture that you can, you can produce. Yeah. But I, I just love the sliding between, you yeah, know, yeah. and feeling like really free yeah it's very fun to hear for me the challenge is the f finding a fingering that actually doesn't trip me up in the line <laughs> it's like yeah you know like that's where the that's where i think where the overtones really help because in some regards the fingering becomes sort of secondary to the throat and control all that other control stuff absolutely yeah yeah that's it's it's all about the voicing and how you're feeling uh internally to get that yeah yeah exactly from her 2019 release wander wonder please enjoy allison's future self
I noticed in an inter- maybe maybe this was a while ago, but there's something on the end of on the tip of your mouthpiece. I don't know what it is. It's like a big round piece of plastic-looking thing. <laughs> oh, um. Maybe it was. I'm trying to think. It looked like a oh, it looked it, like a tooth guard, but it looked like massive. Oh, it might be. I'm not sure which which are, are you referring to a, a picture because I may have switched my mouthpiece too. Oh yeah, it was a photo. No, you were being interviewed. But I can't remember the interview, but I just remember looking at your saxophone and going, what is that little disc that's right on the, t- oh. where the tooth guard would be? It could be, yeah, my, I think my mouthpiece is not here right <laughs> That's now. all right. Um, it, it could be, yeah, I think it's just a tooth, a tooth guard. Maybe it just looked bigger, but I, 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 <laughs> it was huge. I literally it was used like... the regular, the regular sticker ones. No, this was like big black and it was like a circle. Maybe it was a cover for your mouth. I don't know. Oh, yes. It could have been a cover then. <laughs> it's probably what it was. And it, I'm I'm guessing... It, oh, maybe it's this. Could have been like... Um, yeah. Yeah, what is that? For the Francois Louis ligatures. Oh. Have you seen I have ligatures? not seen that. That is fascinating. Another box. Yeah, so the Francois Louis ligatures. I don't actually play that ligature anymore, but... <laughs> The way the mouthpiece covers is such that it covers the tip without interfering with, because it's a ring yeah. ligature. So it doesn't want to go all around it, I guess. I see. So it just had found, a, like, the design just covers the reed itself and stops where the ligature starts. All right, but where your teeth hit, that was a really unique little. Yes. That's a unique It's a weird thing. kind of like over, yeah, a little extra plastic. Are you playing, you play Selmer, right? <laughs> Is that your? Uh, yeah, I played Mark Six. Yeah. Have you seen the new, um, the new Selmer that's coming out? No, I haven't. Yeah, there's some controversy. Well, there's some controversy around the marketing because they didn't have any uh, women in the market. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I've, I've not been following. Yeah, okay. but there's they've created from ground zero. They created a brand new alto, and um, wow. from what I've heard, it's just crazy crazy in tune and crazy like uh, yeah i can't wait to actually try it but um wow okay what do you know what the model's called i'd be actually interested to look it up oh i'll have to find it now it's really new like they just announced it in the last month or two a friend of mine that saxophone teacher here is a good friend of mine rep bender he's a selmer artist and they um he was like, dude, you got to check this out. Like, look at this video. They have a whole video on their website, which is what drew a lot of attention because it was all white guys. Like, it was like, mm. <laughs> like really? Come on. Like, there's all these amazing, right. you know, w- f- female women saxophone players. Like, come on. You guys, right. really? You couldn't, like, find... Anyway, they took a lot of heat for that. But I'm really curious about mm-hmm. that to, to get my hands on that and try it out i also play a mark six which um yeah i uh, kind of an old one which has its own uh i love it but it does have its limitations in terms of like you know the the fingerboard and yeah and you have i well recently i saw you playing i think it was on the stevie wonder thing the soprano and tenor also but you don't play those regularly do you no no but um 
the tenor, I mean, pre-pandemic, I was playing tenor quite a bit, but mostly for jobbing bands and stuff. <laughs> so I was, you know, involved in a few uh, wedding bands, you know, on weekends, whatever. Um, and I would play tenor because I wanted to, I was playing alto in a lot of those projects, but mm -hmm. I decided to switch to tenor in the last couple of years because I have a tenor and it's just sitting in my closet. <laughs> and um, I thought it'd be fun to learn a lot of those songs in different keys. Yeah. Um, and then the soprano, actually, I bought the soprano off of Kelly Jefferson. He was selling it years ago now. Um, and I've, I wanted to play it. I never really had a chance to, to work on it in college. There was just never really an opportunity that, that came my way to, to actively practice it. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those instruments for me that I am, I've really had to create space for myself to, to find ways to practice it. And of course the quarantine has been a great time. <laughs> right. So I've picked it up here and there and just tried to work on different things. Um, not super consistently, but it's been really fun just as a side project. Right. And I would like to hopefully try to play it more. So I'm trying to find uh, other opportunities to fun. to force myself to play Is it. Is that a Somer also, the tenor? Um, the Sorry, the soprano or the, the tenor? tenor? Sorry, you were talking about soprano just now. Yeah, is it is yeah. is it is it a Selmer also, the soprano, or no? The soprano is a Yamaha, I believe. Okay. I think it's a custom. Uh, I could double check. Yeah, it's a it's a Yamaha custom. Oh, nice. I don't know exactly what model. Um, and uh, the tenor is a yeah, it's a Selmer. Yeah. Okay, which do you know which one, which model? I think it's a six. A Mark six. And I, yeah, and I got it as a deal <laughs> that um, a technician gave me because he had a an old horn that a an elder client was selling who is no longer playing mm -hmm. and he just wanted to make sure it went to another saxophone player oh nice so he gave me a good deal on it otherwise <laughs> great they're expensive now i know they're crazy i know they're not cheap what is your um can you talk a little bit i know we talked a little about bit about the overtones but like what is your can you give us an idea of what else might be in your warm-up and what a typical practice session might look like for you yeah, so um, when I start, it's uh, always with overtones. Um, now I have integrated a bit of a long tone practice, which is very simply, I think, pretty standard. Mm -hmm. Just uh, crescendo and decrescendo over the course of 16 beats mm -hmm. um, on every note, slowly. So it's like very meditative for me. And then, um, then I turn on the drones and practice with that. So... Um, Oh, and actually now I've, I've integrated another short little exercise um, that Remy actually gave me about uh, breath control. Mm. So um, just for a few minutes, and I try to go through my whole range as you know efficiently as I can, but it's about starting the note with air and just getting the note to speak ever so quietly. So it's a, it's a very quiet in terms of dynamics exercise. Mm -hmm. But it's about finding um, pressure balance on the reed. And I, I do that actually even before I do anything else right now at the moment. It's a new thing I'm just trying to integrate into my routine. Mm -hmm. But it's just trying to get my embouchure activated and find that very delicate point where the sound starts. So when I actually get the sound, there's still quite a lot of air in sure. it. Um, but I stop, like, I'm just trying to hold the note at that dynamic level with a lot of air and that sound. So I'm finding that point where those two start to morph into each other. Mm -hmm. And then I hold the note there and then I just go through my entire range 
as best I can. Of course, it gets really hard. <laughs> On the low um, register. Yeah, from D flat to B flat, it's really challenging. I'm still trying to figure out like how to relax my throat to find that balance point. I'm not good at it. Let's put it that way. But I'm I'm just right. trying to navigate that at the moment. So I do a variety of those kinds of warm up exercises before I do anything else. Mm -hmm. So that takes me about 20 minutes to half an hour. Um, and then following that, I have a technique practice um, where I have an assortment of I kind of have, you know, uh, I'm a bit of a nerd. I have a bit of a checklist mm -hmm. that I go through. So right now it's just playing through arpeggios, some kind of arpeggio. It's major, minor, mm -hmm. um, major seven arpeggios or like uh, four-part chords yep. in arpeggios mm -hmm. through the whole range. Um, then it's like some kind of pattern I'm working through. Um, From like a transcription or just something that you've made up? Anything. Anything, some kind of technical pattern in all 12 keys. Okay. Um, what was the other thing? And do you vary, art, uh, vary articulations with that also? or No, right now it's all slurred. Okay. Everything is slurred. Um, the other thing is, oh yeah, just like different non-diatonic intervals. So uh, minor thirds, augment, <laughs> augmented fourths, yeah. I don't know, sixths, but throughout the whole range, yep. non-diatonically. Uh, going up chromatically um and then scales in thirds fourths fifths sixths and sevenths so you're talking um, about like broken thirds fourths fifths sixths and sevenths yeah okay. yeah and all slurred through the whole range okay. so and everything's with a metronome so i know like all the tempos that i'm working through and i just try to keep playing them you know yep. work them up um so yeah so that that might take me like 45 minutes or so um, and then after that, there's like a bit of transcriptions, whatever solo I'm working on, mm -hmm. which I spend time doing that. And then some classical, classical repertoire, or if there's a song specifically, I might do that and work on that and just improvise. And is this a, do you like do this as a block or, or do each, each of those say 45 minute or 40 to 30 to 45 minute sessions happen throughout the day? Or is it just like, no, for the next three hours I'm practicing. Yeah, that's a great question. No, I, I can't do that. I, I think maybe at a point I could. Um, but no, I, I don't practice it for a very long time every day. Mm -hmm. And certainly through the quarantine, I've gone through phases. There have been phases where I haven't practiced, and then I've gotten back into it. You know. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, when, when I establish a routine, I, it's broken up through the day. So usually my warm-up is done within... Yeah, I would say half an hour, maybe 40 minutes sometimes. Like, I try to keep it quick because yeah. there's other material I want to work through. But sometimes the warm-up is taking me a long time if I'm really focused or I'm, I really dig into a concept. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, then the technique and everything else, what I actually do is I use a, a kitchen timer. I do, too. That's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. Is that – are you – Are you? Uh, were you inspired by the Pomodoro technique? No. I was inspired by my teacher and in college, Steve Owen at the University of Oregon. Um, oh, cool! I don't know if you know him. He's a really great writer, arranger, and awesome guy. But he, I was just as a quick aside. I was practicing like four hours a day and not making any progress. And Steve was like, yeah. "Well, you're wasting like ninety percent of the time." So he he had me get a kitchen timer, and he's like, "Scales fifteen minutes. Just set the timer and go." And it like told it was a game changer for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Um, 
And I've gone through phases of using it in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did try the Pomodoro technique yeah. and I found that very effective. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like... So are, 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 yeah. yeah, so just explain what the Pomodoro... I know what it is, but just so our listeners know what the Pomodoro technique is. Yeah, I might mess this up in terms of like the precision of it, but the general idea is that uh, I think it was used for students studying for exams. Yeah. Uh, you know, like SATs or MCATs or what have you. Um, but it's breaking up your study uh, in in segments with mini breaks in the midst of it. And then when you do a cycle, you have a longer break at the end of that cycle to give your brain a chance to focus, relax, and then refocus. So it's not... Like you said, you're not just sitting there for hours and you're not really being efficient with the time. So I believe the Pomodoro technique specifically is 25 minutes work, 5 minutes rest, 25 minutes, 5, 25, 5. And I believe when you do, I can't remember if it's three three rounds of 25 or four rounds, but then you get a longer 20-minute break. Mm-hmm. And again, I could be wrong with the actual increment, but I do believe it's the 25-minute. I think that's correct. Yeah. Um, and then you just repeat the cycle. Yeah. Um, there, there's an app called flat tomato. I was using that does that quite precisely. Okay. It will start you going okay. and it won't stop until you get to the, the 20 minute mark, yeah. which is a longer rest. But, um, but anyway, you could do variations of that. So I've actually done ones where they're even shorter than 25 minutes. Like you said, 15 minutes. I've done 10 minute ones. If there's just, I mean, for example, if I have a busy deer, I know I, I need to get quite a few other things done, mm-hmm. but I do want to get to the saxophone. I'll put 10 minutes just so I get a variety of things I could do that day. Right. Uh, in basically. And are you generally like six days a week, five days a week, seven days a week? What's your, Oh, honestly, I don't have, uh, I don't think like that. <laughs> it varies. Yeah. Um, cause sometimes I might have, Three days of practice, one day I didn't have a chance to get to it. Maybe, like, for example, I'm applying for a grant, and that takes up my whole day. And then I get back to it the next day, and then maybe I have two days in the midst of that where I couldn't get to the horn. It, it kind of rotates. Okay. Do you record your practice so, sessions ever? No, I don't. But sometimes I'll take out my phone and record, like, segments of a song I'm working on just to see how I'm sounding on those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't record the entire thing. Okay. And the, yeah, is that something that you tried? Uh, yeah, I I do it. Uh, usually, I do it once a week, and then I listen back. And then Steve Smith said, "Oh no, no, you need to record every session and listen back immediately because you need to know what you're doing wrong as quickly as possible so you fix it right away." Oh. <laughs> For me, it's a little painful. Like I don't like listening to my practice (laughs) sessions so it's like for me it's like a good i like to listen back before i because i write my routine on sundays and then for the coming week and i like to listen back to uh like i have a reference point where i'm listening to say oh what do what am i not catching that i should maybe work on this week so i find it a useful in my practice it's been like once a week but steve's like no, listen. He like emailed me like, "No, you got to do it right away." It was really funny. Wow, that's great though. I I'm sure I would benefit from that. I haven't been as disciplined, and I agree with you. I have trouble. Well, maybe maybe that's indicative of something. <laughs> I have trouble listening back to myself too. So maybe I should get used to listening to myself. 
that's probably my hurdle. But yeah, that would be that would be great. Yeah. I I should find a way to do that. It's well for me. It's just totally... like also just one more thing. It's like I yeah. try to keep things as simple as possible, so I actually do them. The more stuff I add, then it's like oh, one yeah. more thing. But um, when yeah, absolutely. I'm when sure. you're transcribing, do you write out the solo? And then practice it, or do you learn it by ear and then write it out, or do you have what's your process like for transcription? Yeah, the the notation of it is the last thing I do. Um, so yes, I will play along with it for a very long time before I write it out, so I know exactly, like I could sing it back. Mm -hmm. In the notation process, I don't necessarily have to refer to my saxophone. Yeah. Um. But uh, for a project, I've been doing a series on YouTube um, specific to transcriptions, and I've had to kind of accelerate that process somewhat. A lot of the solos I was working on anyway already, but a couple just to kind of get some content up on the page, I did them really quickly, mm -hmm. and I notated them as I was working through mm -hmm. them. So I've tried it a couple of different ways, but um, for solo, when I have the time and I'm really focused on getting that uh yeah I don't notate it till the very end or I don't even notate it at all mm -hmm. and how this recent thing where you had to notate it sooner did you notice mm -hmm. anything about that as opposed to you taking the long longer your usual approach um yes I guess I guess just the attention to detail um just really ha having to hone in on uh, articulation and really like, quite literally think about that where I think if I were to just be playing it for myself I wouldn't necessarily put uh, like I wouldn't codify it in that way yeah. I would just think I don't know it's a bit more abstract I guess you know when you're when it's still in your head mm -hmm. um, but really coming to get to that crystallizing um, image of what it's going to look like on the page that does change something about mentally how you're picturing the the solo right. For sure, yeah. yeah. And once you've learned it, do you just like file it away or do you like then work certain aspects of it or take parts out of it that you're going to integrate into your playing? What do you do with the end product? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I think a lot of the times I, I don't think about it at all. And then sometimes those lines come out in my playing without me uh, intentionally doing it. Other times I've taken... Um, just really short phrases and just try to learn that, that in 12 keys. And if it's something I really like, yeah, I'll, I'll deliberately try to interject that in a solo or practice it on a tune that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a combination of things, but certainly I think when I first started transcribing, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of intention behind it. It was really just like, just do it and don't worry. It's just a process that you participate in every day. There's no end goal. I'm not trying to extract licks. I think now I do that more frequently than I would have when I started. Right. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a combination of things. Cool. And then do you, um, when you're preparing for a gig or when you've, you know, when you, when your band or even in the writing process, when I'm, what I'm trying to get to is like, do you form a concept of your solo or like a character like, you know, for example, Tides, you know, is a very, it's got a character of its own, that piece. And then do you think about or put intention into the character 
what you want the character of your solo to be like prior to recording or performing or is or is it more organic in the moment i would say yeah i would say it's more organic but at the same time i think that that probably is inherent in that process like the the second thing that you mentioned uh or sorry the 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 intentionally um putting character i i guess maybe i wouldn't characterize it as character um specifically but just the vibe or what i think fits but yeah for lack of a better word it it, it is character for sure mm. um i guess i just think of it as more broadly like how is my sound fitting against the the piano or the keyboards whatever todd is playing um and the bass and what what fabio is doing and what john on the bass is playing so it's more like a broader sense of spectral color, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I'm not specifically thinking about, uh, how do I put it? I guess it's more like I'm thinking about timbre and color more than maybe the line itself. Mm -hmm. But it still totally speaks to what you're talking about. I guess that is character for sure. Right. And do you... I guess part of the question is when you're preparing, when you're practicing your pieces, mm -hmm. when you're practicing your saxophone <laughs> for the pieces that you've written, are you consider? Are you you're considering all that? You're considering the character and the and the other musicians as you're shedding the piece prior to getting into the the workshop or the or the. Yeah, I guess I guess inadvertently I am. I think in the in the practice process i am quite literally just making sure i know the <laughs> harmony yeah and that's all i feel personally that i'm doing yeah. i'm definitely working through arpeggiated shapes different lines i think that work finding common tones through the chord progression finding little melodies and i'm not really thinking about the tune i'm really looking at it from a very clinical perspective mm -hmm. But as I continue to do that, that's certainly in my recording prep, I am playing through those songs regularly in the weeks leading up to a recording session. Or if we have performances, I have a chance to play through them a bunch. But I'm I'm very clinical about that process, and I'm not really aware of what it sounds like quite yet. Yeah, I'm not thinking too much about yeah. that. I'm just making sure. Internalizing okay, it. Okay, do I know it's... Yeah. Is that a B minor 7? Okay, that's the augmented chord. Okay, what's... Oh, that was a slash chord. Okay, I have to remember what that what that color generally is. Yeah. So it's really just focused about the notes, as, as boring as that sounds. But as I continue to work through them on a regular basis, I start getting more and more free with playing through yeah. it, inevitably. And then I just let whatever happens come out. And then that's now, at that stage, probably closer to a recording session... I'm thinking more about okay, rhythmically, what is that sounding like when I skate over those chords mm -hmm. or when I try to get to that chord, what is it going to sound like? What's the vibe? Am I going for a more rhythmic thing? You know? Mm -hmm. um, but the majority of my practice is just making sure I understand what the, the harmonic yeah. device is. Totally get it. Yeah. So I'm not really intentional about the overall broad sound gotcha. at all. Gotcha. Yeah, that really comes like in the performance for me. Yeah, I I totally relate to that. Also from Wander Wonder, a Juno-nominated recording. This one is called "Looking Up."
what would you say is the most challenging aspect when you're writing and arranging for you? Um, really being true to the next thing. So for me, it's easy to start an idea, but to hear genuinely where it flows without it sounding contrived or forced or just like I'm inserting a, a cool thing or a, a, me, a me mechanism mm -hmm. or something Device. I know that works. Yeah. Yes. But doesn't really sound organic. Um, so for me in the writing process, I spend a lot of time singing and I sing a lot of melodies in no context or without context. Mm -hmm. And then trying to find what is the bottom end of that that fits nicely or sounds like it should work with the song. Yeah. Um, so I guess in short, it, it's finding the flow that feels like it would be sung. That's always the priority in my writing is that what I sing that. And if I can, then that's what I'm writing. Got usually. It. Um, and I never write with a saxophone ever. Um, it's just at the keyboard. It's Oh yeah. It's just piano and voice. So it has to sound complete to me in that stage. Um, and compelling in some way in that iteration with just those two colors for me to give it the, the green light <laughs> to go forward kind of, um, but yeah, making making it feel organic, I think, is the the most challenging thing. Right. Do you have a way? I mean, I'm sure you do. Probably on your phone of capturing ideas throughout the day as they come to you. Yeah, I have to. I have my phone. I also have a digital recorder that just sits on my keyboard. So whenever I'm there, if something strikes, I I turn that on quickly. Mm -hmm. If I don't have my phone on me. Um. I listen back to things. I I will. If there's something I really like, I'll I'll transcribe that and put it in a loop. So I'll use like a transcribe app and have that cycling and then see what other layers I can sing or, or play on the piano on top of that to see if that generates the next idea or maybe even just informs that section and maybe gives me an indication as to what the bass player might play or maybe I'll write a counterpart. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in that, in that sense, technology has been really helpful in that sense. Um, there's a while earlier on, I was writing in Sibelius mm. and then I was getting immediate feedback, but then I was finding very quickly, which obviously is a very naive way to, to approach writing, but I was f running into crutches, obviously, like just kind of going for the same thing yeah. or I would hit walls in that process. So I really try to not involve any, technological device now if I can avoid it first unless I really hit a block where I'm trying to figure out what to to do which when I'll create a loop for yeah. myself for example but otherwise it's just pencil and and, and paper awesome. as much as I can <laughs> that's really cool <laughs> what's um what are you what are you looking forward to over the next 12 months like do you do you have you first of all do you have any gigs booked Um, do I have any gigs? I have one actually just this week came up for the end of June mm -hmm. and I believe it's going to be outdoors. So that sounds pretty promising. I, as though I know I mentioned earlier, we're still in the midst of a yeah. lockdown at the moment. 
and a lot of things are still up in the air. I think everyone has been apprehensive about being optimistic because we were, and then it got shut yeah. down, and then everyone was hopeful, it got shut down again. Um, so it, it could still potentially get canceled, but yes, I have one thing in June, and it's not for my own project. Um, and aside from that, no, that's it. And are you are you writing? Are you writing for the next recording? Yeah, I am actually. Um, actually, it's a project that involves Lila. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Well, year, so a year ago, so twenty twenty January, um, Lila and I did a premiere of a suite of music that I wrote. I was commissioned by the Royal Conservatory of Music in Toronto. Um, to write a completely brand new piece of music to be premiered at a festival that encourages um, different collaborations and getting people to kind of perform outside of their bubble somewhat. Mm -hmm. So Lila was a special guest because we'd never worked together before. And in addition to the quartet, I added um, a great vibraphonist and uh, mini string section. So just two strings players. So it's kind of like an expanded iteration of the ensemble. Um, and we played music that was new. And because Lila was there, I, I forced myself to, to write music to lyrics, which I'd never done before. So I, I took poetry and adapted it mm. um, for the music I was writing. Um, so it's called Migration Suite, and it's loosely inspired on my, my family history of my dad's side of the family coming from southern China and my mother's side of the family coming from um, Poland after World War II and their their journey of immigration to Canada. Yeah. Um, but more broadly, it's just about why people move mm. and the, the stories and circumstances people find themselves in to completely abandon their homes and, and you know, forge a new life in, in a new place. Yeah. So the poetry that I found to kind of contextualize the music um, is a, a bunch of different poets. Some of them are, are Aboriginal Canadian poets um, talking about identity and culture through poetry. And then I found a few poems from Langston Hughes and another American poet named Wanda Coleman, who um, her body of work discusses poverty and mm. uh, economic disparities. Um and some of them are just uh, actually Lila reading poetry with scored music below or underneath rather. And then um, some of them, I, I took the lyrics and we made like, I made a song mm. out of it. Um, so I'm looking right now to add a couple more pieces and then we're hoping to record at the end of this year. Nice. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a bit of a, a larger project for me. It's certainly bigger than the quartet, but it's exciting because it's very different from what I'm used to. I mean, it still sounds like Alice in music, I think, but um, I think the element of lyrics really changed my perspective in a lot of ways Um, because it's so different to me, so foreign as an an instrumental composer that it really challenged me in different ways Mm -hmm. to make like rhythmic pacing, for example, work to match the lyrics so it doesn't sound clunky or difficult i mean i have to remember that someone has to sing it like literally and get the words to come out clearly which is never a consideration for me otherwise um so yeah so basically i have eight pieces that make the suite uh and i'm i'm gonna add a few more to kind of flush out so it could be a a more substantial full-length album sure well that sounds fun yeah sounds awesome yeah it's cool it's it's kind of a fun challenge (laughs) um 
what are what are you current so we're, we're going to end with a few kind of what i call rapid fire but they they end up not necessarily being rapid <laughs> um, <laughs> what are you what cool. are you currently listening to sam gendel sam gendel um yeah he's a great alto saxophonist and composer and multi-instrumentalist based out of los angeles i believe okay. um and he's kind of affiliated with um lewis cole are you mm-hmm. familiar with lewis cole and nowhere he's played a bunch of um shows when nowhere's expanded their ensemble he's been featured on saxophone with them um but a few friends have told me about him because he uses saxophone in a really interesting way. Um, so he just put out an album called Fresh Bread this year. And he's quite prolific. He's done a few other records as well. Oh. And different collaborations. Um, but this one, I think it's like 52 tracks. Wow. It's almost four <laughs> hours of music. Wow. Um, and some of the pieces are short, like two-minute, three-minute expositions. And others are maybe closer to seven minutes. And they're a variation of... Live performances and um, his produced music. So a lot of it's like synth-based with saxophone going through pedals. Mm. It sounds like it's such a variety. It's hard to describe his music. Some of it sounds like hip-hop groove. Some of it sounds like ambient mm-hmm. textural music. Some of it sounds experimental. But I'm really intrigued by his use of uh, synths. Mm. And it's been something I've been getting into a bit more. I, I would say probably from the beginning of like the when we released the last record. Mm-hmm. Um, Todd, the keyboardist was starting to integrate, um, like the Prophet Rev 2 and, um, right. I mean, we're kind of dabbling with some organ use already. Right. And that first Uh, track off that album, that shorter, what's the, I'm spacing the name of the first track. It's called The Valley. The Valley, Valley. yeah. 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 That had, that was very electric. Yeah. Yeah. That's all Prophet. I, I, I would like to use more of that and I'm kind of talking to him about what would sound best for what I'm writing. Uh, Cause he has a lot of ideas, but I'd like to use more sense in my future projects mm-hmm. going forward. Um, so anyway, yeah. long story short, what Sam is doing, I think is, is I'm finding really intriguing and I'm um, been dabbling. Like I was saying earlier in logic a bit more and trying to learn how to use plugins and things. So I'm hoping, um, yeah, it's just, it's been really inspiring to, to check out that music and giving me some ideas as to what, you know, I could. Yeah. So you're thinking about like throwing some effects on your sax stuff too. I think that would be interesting texturally. And it's something I haven't really spent much time to explore. And I don't think of myself as, um, a tech savvy person, (laughs) to be honest. Um, even in the process of learning about logic and, and just like audio signal flow, I mean, I can't believe how, uh, let's say novice <laughs> <laughs> I am just learning how to root things, troubleshoot things. If, if mics are not working, I mean, I'm very, yeah. Adept, no, wait, yeah, <laughs> inept. I was gonna say adept. Um, so it's been a, a really big learning curve for me. And I think, um, yeah, just kind of exploring that side of, of audio and effects would be a totally different endeavor for me that I think would be worth checking yeah. out. What, what is a guilty listening pleasure for you? Guilty listening, Beyonce. <laughs> but I'm not afraid to say I don't even think that's guilty. Um, yeah, I was checking out some Beyonce, Ariana Grande, 
Um, there's some Britney Spears stuff that is very good. Um, yeah, I've heard people think, cover well, uh, Toxic, actually. I was thinking of Toxic. <laughs> toxic is, I think that's a pretty amazing song. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a Max Martin song. It, it, it could very be. well could be. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that kind of stuff. But again, I, I wouldn't consider that guilty. Sure. But yeah, maybe unexpected. Sure. Um, no K-pop for you. Certainly huh? might... No K-pop for you, huh? No, no K. I haven't gone. I haven't gone down that rabbit hole. That that might be fun. I should check that out. I just haven't had a chance to. Um, but my early beginnings, like I think, the reason why I got into jazz was through a lot of R and B, like early '90s R and B. Um, and I still go back and listen to those nice. records. So uh, that would be like a lot of uh, Boys to Men, SWV, Drew Hill, mm-hmm. Jodeci. Um on Vogue, like a lot of those uh, vocal ensembles, I think I really liked that music. And I think that was a bridging point for me into jazz as well. Makes sense. Um, Yeah. I meant to ask you this earlier in this, when we were talking about gear, but what, uh, I'm just curious what read you play on what strength was strength to read and what brand are you using? Yeah, well, I'm, I've been going through changes right now. At the the moment, I'm playing uh, Van Doren Java Redbox Three. Mm-hmm. And three? then, what ligature yes. are you using with that? And mouthpiece. I'm using a Van Doren Optimum ligature, and the piece I'm playing is a uh, uh, Sebastian Knox Woodwinds. Uh, he's a local Toronto uh, mouthpiece maker. He's been doing a lot of refacing over the last few years i mean sorry for a while he apprenticed with um oh no my mind's escaping me ted clum in new jersey um for several years and then he moved back to toronto i met him at cumber college who's a fellow saxophone major at the time Um, and he's since really gone into the the mouthpiece thing so i'm playing one of his pieces i don't know if there's a model name for mm-hmm. it um he's doing a lot of different kinds of alto pieces at the moment and is um, it a medium facing yeah. or like what's the do you know what it is i believe it's a smaller chamber uh i think it's a medium facing i i get i don't yeah, retain a lot of that right. information very well um but it's the tip opening is close i believe he told me it's close to a 78 okay just curious i'll have to double check that but I only say that because I was playing a larger tip opening for a long time. I was playing close to an 85 tip, which for alto is maybe about an eight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to go smaller now and experiment with a harder read setup at the moment mm-hmm. and just kind of see, you know, um, part of that is in my, I just did a couple lessons with uh, Remy LeBeouf over the last few months. So by no means have I been seeing him regularly, which I, probably should um but he's been getting me to play a lot more classical music than i have Mm -hmm. in the in recent years and we've been talking about setup and how a smaller uh tip opening could help with some more control for more classical styled music so just been exploring that side of things and seeing if i could tweak a couple of yeah aspects of my setup so classical is it like uh etudes or like pieces like like classical saxophone pieces yeah, well, at the moment, I'm working through the Bach cello suite. Oh, nice. Um, so just trying to play through. He's getting me to find music. Well, 
I mean, through that specifically, the big, the big jumps leaps, and leaps yeah. and just making sure I have good control and, and um, sound pronunciation mm-hmm. on all the, the jumps. Um, but yeah, there's a couple of things. I mean, I have a book of etudes as well. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of looking into other classical music because a lot of stuff um, I actually don't own. Yeah. I think he mentioned the Glazunov. The Glazunov Concerto. Some, yeah, uh, that's a great one. Yeah. I haven't checked that out. So I was thinking about getting that one. Yeah. So there's so much that I, I feel that is lacking on my end that uh, probably going to do some shopping nice. at some point for some more nice. music. Yeah. Um, what are your essential practice room tools? Tools, okay. In what sense, like tech tools, or Just like um, your essentials to have when you're practicing, like metronome, tuner, drone, those sorts of things. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I have my iPad, which has metronome. Um, yeah, I do use a digital tuner on that uh, occasionally, and then yeah, the drone. I'm been using the what's the app? There's a drone app that's oh, excellent. Cool. It does cost money though. I think it's called the iTempora. I could be wrong, but it does generate a variety of the drone sounds. It's like a Shruti box, but it also has tabla sounds if you want to. It will oh, nice. uh, include percussion. Okay. But you can mute it. And what I do is I mute all the percussion sounds and I just play around with the drones. Okay. I think it's called iTempora. Um, kitchen timer, like we mm-hmm. talked about. Um, what else do I keep handy? I think that's probably it. I mean, a notepad. I, I, I'm I'm taking notes sometimes with things that I need to work on as I'm practicing. Nice. So I'll write that down. Um, but aside from that, that's about it. I mean, I do at the moment. I have a microphone set up just so that if I have an idea or if I want to track something, I'm, I'm, it's just You're ready. ready to record. Kind of. yeah. yeah. So just kind of being sitting in my, you know, in front of my music stand. Um, but yeah, I, I all the things you mentioned pretty much standard right. for me as well. And is it similar for when you're writing and arranging or is that more just keyboard pen and paper and your voice? Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> much it. I would agree. Yeah. Okay. Much simpler. <laughs> um, how how would you like other musicians to see or or what do you hope they what do they what do you hope they say about you your peers Oh That's a really good question. I mean, I've certainly been thinking about not exactly from that angle but just in in light of the pandemic and having this time in the absence of performance like who am I, you know, in the midst of this or what do I sound like or what kind of art am I creating? Uh, what am I mm-hmm. leaving? You know, um, I guess I would like my peers to think of me as always exploring. I know that sounds really vague to some extent, but I don't know if I define myself in a very specific way. Mm-hmm. And I think I've certainly been going through the motions of questioning what I actually sound like or what I may appear to be to people. I don't know if I fall into any category um, Mm. that's so explicit in the sense that I don't feel like I'm a straight ahead jazz saxophone player. I feel like I perhaps fall into a more contemporary sound. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I don't think I sound like a lot of other saxophone players 
technically or in terms of just like the sound. Um, So I guess I would like to be thought of as always exploring and in pursuit of something unique, I guess, or an original Mm. voice. Nice. Um, Is there anybody that you are dying to collaborate with? Is there anybody that you're like, wow, I really wish I could work with this person and there probably is more than one but i'm just curious yeah that actually we're my partner and i were just talking about this uh that's so hard for me because there are a lot of people um collaborate with I'm going to say, yeah, collaborate. It would be interesting. I would certainly love to meet and um, uh, Dijavan, the Brazilian composer mm-hmm. who's, who's alive. Uh, he's older. I, well, actually, no, I, I think he's in his 60s now. Um, but I would love, and if I got to play with him, that would be amazing. But I love the way he approaches composition. Mm-hmm. And it would be cool to play with him in some capacity if that, if that were ever to happen. Um, and also to, to converse with him, if, if that was possible, that would be great. Um, I'm trying to think, I can think of other saxophone players, but I understand that the collaboration oh, it would be interesting. I, I really love Ben Van Gelder's writing as mm-hmm. well. I would be really cool to work with him in some way. Mm. Um, but that's as a fellow saxophone player. I, I think that would be a bit more instrument specific kind yeah. of stuff. Um, yeah, that's all that's okay. coming to mind to me right now. That's I'm sorry, I'm having a blank. There's so <laughs> right. many people. It's kind of an unfair yeah. question. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would say that you're a bit of a, I mean, I don't know if you see yourself this way, but I would say you're a bit of a role model for young girls, you know, that um, that are aspiring to be uh, saxophonists in particular, or instrumentalists, and what, like, mm-hmm. what would advice would you give to uh, a student of yours who wants to follow in your footsteps? That's a young lady. Um, I would say don't wait for permission to do things that you want to do. Certainly when I finished school, um, you know, I, I, I entered school as a, very beginner I mean compared to my peer my more experienced peers coming into music school in a, in a music specific mm-hmm. program I also left as positive my experience was in college I also left feeling like I was still a beginner mm-hmm. in many ways still kind of playing catch-up to a lot of my yeah. peers and I, as a lot of college students are, I mean, I wasn't the top player in the program. I wasn't given a lot of opportunity in the program in the way some music uh, programs work. They reward the top players with performing with guest artists and extra recording opportunities and, and public profile, like, yeah. you know, um, gig opportunities for students. I didn't have a lot of that stuff. So when I finished college, it was really just me left to my own devices on how to start something. And I didn't really know where to begin, but I knew I wanted to write and improve my writing. And that's kind of where the band project came into play. So I would say don't wait for permission from anyone to start something that you want to do. 
just do it. Uh, I'm talking about creative yeah. pursuits. Like if you, if you're hearing a sound, you find those people to collaborate with that you trust and just start, start projects. Mm. Um, I have friends who are great musicians who just, haven't had the urge or the motivation to, to do the thing. They're, they're totally like great side people and, and they're content with that role, but they haven't been compelled to be uh, the leader in that sense. Mm. So I would say for me, it was more, the onus was on me to start. Yeah. I had to take the initiative. Right. Um, so I would say, just don't be afraid to, to do that. And don't wait for people to be like, yeah, let's do it. Like you, it really has to come you from drive you. drive it. Yeah, right. exactly. Cool. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Where's a good place to learn more about Allison? Oh, well, my, yeah, my, my website for sure, um, which is just my full name, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-A-U.com. Um, I'm posting a bit more regularly on Instagram for more recent mm -hmm. things. Um, and that is, I believe, Allison Al Music, mm -hmm. yep. if I'm not mistaken. That's my handle. Um, and then Facebook, but I would say I'm, I'm probably more regularly on Instagram than Facebook these days just because the medium I find, I like, I like the way it looks yeah. a bit better. <laughs> and you have a YouTube channel that's pretty nice too. Yes, I do have a YouTube. I have two YouTube channels. One is for my original music and the other is called Ali Plays Alto, which is all one word. And it's the transcription project I've been doing in the midst of the quarantine, um, which is specifically geared for also players. Um, so I have the notated part in the YouTube video with myself playing. So if people want to play along, yeah, it's totally free. It's all on YouTube. And if anyone's interested in supporting my Patreon, you can get um, access to the PDF charts there as well. Oh, sweet. Yeah, and there's links uh, on my YouTube channel to go Great. there. And are you teaching privately? You can somebody study with you if they so desire. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At the moment, I have mostly Toronto-based students. Uh, I've yet to take on any uh, international or outside of Toronto students. But, yeah, I would totally be open to that. Awesome. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, Allison, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. And I'm Likewise, super grateful Steve. that you shared this time with me and, and my audience. Cheers. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Steve again, and just a couple of quick things before you take off. First of all, thanks again for listening. I appreciate it so much. If you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend. I'd really like to grow the audience more in this second year, and you can help. Just share a link from Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, or just send them to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. People are always looking for something fun and interesting to listen to so give them a chance to check out the playful musician i really appreciate it also don't forget to check out the website yourself theplayfulmusician.com we have all the past shows there and you can listen to as well as show notes from this show and past episodes it was such a blast talking to allison i hope it was fun for you also if you enjoyed this episode, you might also enjoy my episode with Dr. Rhett Bender, professor of saxophone at Southern Oregon University, and my episode with jazz saxophonist Joel Fromm. Both excellent saxophonists and really fun interviews. Okay, everyone, enjoy your spring. Be safe out there. I'll see you again back here real soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.